0: Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods, love cakes and raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, a homer, and a lech of barley. And I said to her, "You must dwell with me, dwell as mine for many days, as you shall not play the whore or begin or belong to another man. So will I be able be to you? For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without kings or prince." without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear the Lord, and in goodness in the later days. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And more they were called, and the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was who I taught it, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I looked them up by the, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with a bands of love. I became to them as one who cares the, carries the yoke of their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Ezra, excuse me, I just lost where I was. But Ezra shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against the cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The the holy one in your midst and i will not come in wrath i shall go after the lord i shall go after the lord he will roar like a lion when he roars his children shall come trembling from the west and shall come trembling like birds from egypt
1: now when they had departed behold an angel the lord,
2: uh,
0: Please join me in prayer. Oh yeah, go ahead and light it. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that we are able to gather here together and to join you in prayer and worship you. We are blessed as a nation to have the right to worship the one true God that called his son out of Egypt to save us all. May we be with... May we be with you through this Advent season, not lose sight of you through the gifts and the lights that have become worldly aspects through this time of year. We pray for the families that this virus has impacted, some within our own congregation and close family, friends, and coworkers. Please be with them through this and give them comfort. We pray that you speak through Pastor Shaw today and let the words and teachings be from you. We are blessed as a church to have a pastor that is so full of biblical teaching. We thank you again for this time together, and we thank you for all of our blessings, grace, and salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
2: Well, church, with that, let's stand together again, proclaiming the birth of our Savior.
1: Well, we've come to Advent, maybe we don't use that word a lot, it's a kind of a term that just means arrival or coming, uh, usually the arrival or coming of a diplomat, and that is of course why we gather in the first place, because we recognize in Jesus the Nazarene is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so you heard the readings today, readings from the prophet Hosea. Uh, Not a book, probably, that we return to often, but I think this really lends itself to a larger question, and that is, what do we make of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament? I mean, a lot of us, I hope, we have these physical Bibles that we bring to church, and you know, you just begin to navigate it, and you'll see, well, actually, it's dominated, uh, more than two-thirds of it are dominated uh, by what we call the Old Testament, And at first, you say, this seems very odd. I mean, we're largely Gentile congregation. I would guess some of us may be a little bit of uh, ethnic uh, Jewish blood in us. But for the most part, we're a Gentile congregation, and we come together, we carry these Bibles, and it's dominated by a book that God uh, writes about what he did with Israel, with the ethnic Jews. And hopefully as you walk with Christ for a time, and you are a Christian, you say hopefully there is a recognition as to why we have the Hebrew Bible and why the Old Testament is so very important. And that is for this reason, that we believe that all of the the Hebrew Bible that's scattered throughout the Old Testament, that there are signposts pointing forward to what God is going to do in the future. That all throughout, you say there's promises that are made. So you just be reading like in Hosea and say all of a sudden you have a promise here of this figure to come who's going to liberate God's people or or ultimate redemption that's going to be futuristic. So there's just all these promises and and we wait for their fulfillment. In fact, I think that's a very good, what we would call hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the Bible to see that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, you have all kinds of promises and that they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, you have any doubt about this? Say, if you read the very first um, couple of centuries of Christian writing, they're at great pains to make this point. There's a lot of reasons they're at pains to make this point. But in the ancient world, in order to, again, bring this out here this morning a bit, say, ancient world, uh, different than us when it comes to old things and new things. So on your Christmas list this year... I'd be willing to bet that you might be asking for a lot of new things, new new fangled gadgetry, the the latest iteration of an app or some bit of technology. Say, we like new things that will improve, that are kind of burst on the scene, and if it's new, we're probably more inclined to want it. Say, the ancient world is the exact opposite, they're very suspicious of new things. You see, there's an order, a Greco-Roman order, and they had their gods, and anything that burst on the scene that was new could disrupt the social order and was to be treated with great suspicion. See, old things were time-honored. They were trusted. You do things the way that we've always done. We want to keep the Roman gods happy. We can't have this new philosophy burst on the scene where everything's going to be up in the air and say, oh, there'll be all kinds of social turmoil. And that's why, so Christians come on the scene, these followers of Jesus... And so some of the the Greco-Roman antagonists, they say, what is this new teaching? We can't have this new teaching. We have to eradicate it. Can't you see this is going to topple the social order? And all the Christians argue back. They say, actually, we're not new. You see, the Hebrews, they go way back even before the Greeks and the Romans. They're a very old people. And our faith in Jesus is the outworking and fulfillment of what the Jews teach. And again, if you read those first centuries of Christian literature, you say this comes on very heavy. say we're not just this, this uh, philosophy out of the ether, but rather we're long predicted. Jesus is long predicted in the Hebrew Bible and the sacred writings of the Jews. And you could even see that in our passages this morning. Did you, did you catch that? So we read Hosea. Hosea wrote in the 8th century B.C. So call it somewhere around the year 750 B.C. Then Matthew a contemporary of Jesus, when he talks about Jesus as a boy, maybe two, he says what God did in Jesus by bringing him out of Egypt fulfilled what Hosea the prophet talked about. Did you see that? As it was written, over and over again, as it's written, can't you see what God has done in Jesus? Is As it was written, there was a promise that God made and it's fulfilled in Jesus. What a claim to make. That what the prophet Hosea talked about was met in the person of Jesus. And so at Advent, right, we celebrate the coming of Jesus, not as something that God did spontaneously, that he ran out of options. He really had to dig down deep in the, into the bottom of his pocket, so to speak, and he kind of whipped out this this really desperate plan to put forth his son. Not that at all. We see at Christmas time the coming of Jesus is really the linchpin of God's plan from the foundation of the world to put forth Jesus to bring back his people. You see, Christmas is really a fulfillment of what God says he's gonna do in the Hebrew Bible, and Jesus of Nazareth is the long-predicted king of the Hebrew Bible. Another way of putting this, I think this is a very, you've probably heard this before, I think some attribute it to St. Augustine, who you could say wrote about the year 400, but to say this, the New Testament was in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So you can take a, it's in the notes if you want to think about that this week, but the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. So again, there's all these promises. You say, well, when are these promises gonna be fulfilled? I mean, God's talking often about what he's gonna do in the future for his people. You say, there's something there, but what is it? And then you read your New Testament. You say, the ministry of Jesus. And every one of these writers is making the connections back to the Old Testament. You say, oh, there it is. The Old Testament now makes sense that the New Testament tells us what it's about. To use another image, we could think about an old English keyhole. Have you ever seen those, you know, the kind that use the skeleton keys? And if you get down in there and you look through a skeleton uh, keyhole, you're locked outside the room and you look into the room, you say you can see quite a lot in the room. You see some of the furniture, but not all the room. And you say, I just want to find the right key to kind of unlock this vista. And I hope to say that's the Old Testament. You say you get a glimpse of it. There's something there. There's something very promising there. Enter the Lord Jesus, and he's the lock that opens the key. You say, now it all makes perfect sense. You know, even though it's, it's very tempting to do this, you have to think this was the case. Again, it's a speculation, but it's very tempting to do so. You say, Paul is converted, right, who's a Jew of Jews. Say, Paul knew his Hebrew Bible as well as anybody, He's converted by the Lord Jesus to follow him. And then he disappears into Arabia for quite a long time. Many, many years he disappears. And you ask yourself, well, what was Paul of Tarsus doing? And he said, it's very tempting to think what he was doing is going back to his Hebrew Bible, reading all those promises afresh, all the promises of God's people being liberated and the future king and the fulfillment of the throne of David and all those famous parts that see there's signposts pointing forward. And he said, you know what? It's in Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why we celebrate this time of year, again, that God did exactly what he said he's going to do. You remember a few weeks ago, we even looked at Genesis chapter three in verse 15. You say, okay, God's punishing the serpent, right at the very opening pages of the Bible. And he says something like, well, he does say, he says, well, the seed of a woman is gonna crush the powers of darkness. He say, well, that's, that's a promise. It's just kind of hanging out there. And you'll notice what Ian read. Galatians chapter 4, the one born of a woman came forward and he's crushed Satan in the powers of darkness. You see, the Bible's one story, there's a very smooth arc that God did exactly what he's going to do at just the right time. He put forth Jesus and all the Bible makes sense that God says, this is how I'm going to redeem you and buy you back. So that's by way of introduction. Two, Advent season. I think we should all be in the habit of having Old Testament readings and New Testament readings so that we see this. There's a promise and a fulfillment. Now, about the book of Hosea. You see, Hosea is an 8th century BC prophet to the north, uh, the northern 10 tribes. So, a bit of history here. In 922 BC, the 10 northern tribes of Israel broke off from the two in the south. Hosea, like Amos, another prophet, Uh, was a prophet to those northern ten tribes uh, right as the Assyrians are coming in to plunder them. And if Hosea has a theme, again, very hard to distill 14 chapters down to one theme, it's this. It's about the love of God. Now, when you have that phrase, the love of God, you say it's very difficult to get our heads around that, and I think that's what Hosea wants us to see. But this is not uh, what immediately meets the minds of a lot of people who casually think about the Bible, that it doesn't take very long. Some who are antagonistic to our faith, they'll say something, well, don't you know that Old Testament God, I mean, he's a a brutal figure. Uh, There's no love in him at all. So maybe you've heard that objection. Or here's Richard Dawkins, the, the atheist. He'll talk this way. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilental, magalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that is classic Dawkins. A lot of emotion, not much substance, but what he wants to get across is that he really dislikes this Old Testament God and that there's no redeeming quality in him whatsoever. Now, a common objection when people talk this way, and I think it's a good one, is simply this. I don't think he's ever read the Bible. At least he's not a good reader of texts. Because there's no way you can read the prophet of Hosea and come to that conclusion. That what we're going to see in these moments, I hope, is that the God of the Old Testament loves to such an extent that many humans would actually think him irrational. That the surprise isn't that God judges. That's not the breakthrough. What's so surprising is that God would love a rebellious people so much. That's the shock. That at the very least, we want to see Christmas time as the example. Of God's love to people. So love again is difficult to define. We kind of pull all this together. You say love again. We've talked about this many times in our assembly. But love is a greatly misused term and emotive term. You know, one that's tied up in romance or eros, uh, erotic love, uh, rather than being a moral virtue. And then you take it. You know, you you also combine that with this idea of God. You say you're sitting around having a cup of coffee, and you say God is a very lofty subject. You know, he's got no body, no fixity of location. I mean, what is he? You know, all this is just a somewhat a philosophical uh you know back and forth and again we reject that because of christmas you see that's where our faith is distinct it's not just god and god is love and it's kind of out there floating around and it can be be debated which it can but it's not just out there it actually came down here and that's what we plead with everyone to consider right say not just god talk out there but what do you do with jesus because the claim of our faith, again, is that God is love, but he put it on display in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who walked among us, who left an impression, who inaugurated the church, the covenant people of God, and it's with that claim that everyone needs to reckon. You talk to somebody, you say, oh, I don't know what I think about God. I guess I, you know, somebody had to start everything. I mean, that seems fair enough. They say, that's not the question we want to ask everyone, but it is, what do you do with Jesus called the Christ? that every person that was around him said, this is the guy who fulfills the the Hebrew Bible and quite did extraordinary things. And quite frankly, we think he's God. That's the question we're driving at. So it's not, we don't have the luxury of dismissing this as philosophical jargon, but we must contemplate Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians to see the remarkable face of God and the one who walked 2,000 years ago and indeed is raised and mediating for us. So love is difficult, divine love more difficult yet. And thank goodness God put forth Jesus and also in the book of Hosea that God gives us what we could call dramatizations and anthropomorphisms. And anthropomorphisms is a long word, but it's a simple word to understand. And that is that God describes himself or will tell us in human-like qualities what he's like. So you'll be reading the Bible and you'll say, well, the, the sacrifices the people made were a pleasing aroma to God. And you could say, well, this is, am Might a picture God having a giant nose in the sky because he can smell? You say, well, no one reads that that way. It's very clearly in anthropomorphism that God is given a human-like quality, that is the ability to smell, And uh, what we're told then is that God is pleased, right? Generally, he was happy when the people uh, did a certain thing. So that would be an example of an anthropomorphism. And Hosea, to capture this idea of divine love, gives us a dramatization and anthropomorphisms so that we can get our small minds, our limited, fallen small minds, try to get a glimpse of how much God loves his people. So the two pictures, which the Hickson's wonderfully read, We'll start with picture number one, and both of the pictures are about God's love and intimacy with his, with his people. So picture number one from Hosea chapter three is God is the loving spouse. Again, no matter where you're at in life, you say well, it doesn't matter if you're married or not. You say you know what a marriage is, and you have an idea of what a, a perfect marriage might be. You have an ideal of it. You say, again, both of these pictures are for everyone to grasp. What is God's love like? And a little background on Hosea to understand chapter three that Hosea is called to do uh, something many of us would find an impossible thing to do, that God instructs him to take as his wife um, a woman of loose virtue. You say, I speak euphemistically in the family service, but you get the idea. That's what he's to do. And they have a couple of children together, and then she, evidently, is unfaithful to him again. And in chapter 3, verse 1, God says to Hosea again, go again, And love a woman who's loved by another man, who's an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You say, there it is, the the image, the picture, that Hosea is to love this woman who was unfaithful to him. Again, he marries her. She's a woman of loose virtue. He marries her. She's unfaithful again. He's to go back. And retaker, That his life, Hosea, prophets uh, not only speak truth about God, but the actions that they do put God on display. And you have it right there, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So Hosea's relationship with Gomer is the lady's name. So Hosea's relationship with Gomer, this unfaithful woman, is a picture for us to understand what God's people are like to him. That we're unfaithful covenant spouses. You put yourself there in Hosea's shoes for a moment. You go there in your minds. There she is walking around the town. See all the guys have had her. She's got that kind of a reputation. And Hosea says, you're to love her and bring her back home. And she's yours and you're his. And that's what I've asked you to do so that this can be a picture of God's love for his people. You see, friends, this, again, is an image that we can all understand. You say the pain that is involved in something like this. So uh, the inclination of our hearts is to leave our covenant obligations. God says this is the covenant we're in and how quick we are to say no thanks and go our own way. And yet God, in his relentless love for his people, which stay in there, hang in there, and love them all the more. Now, as a sidebar, I want to make a couple of sidebars here. So, sidebar number one, and I don't want anyone to say, well, Shaw preached on Hosea, and he made it about literal adultery. That's not what we're driving at here, but there is a word about this here. You see, I think Hosea, and really all throughout Scripture, when it uses marriage as an image of God and his people, we want to be reminded, as often as we can, as is appropriate, the terrible pain of an affair in marriage. That God's people, especially in these days, that we want to hold our marriages in high regard, And while there are a lot of temptations for wandering eyes and, of course, the mentality of grass being greener on the other side and all those things, say we must, we must as God's people be those who hold our marriages in high regard and hold each other accountable in these covenant relationships because we say when they break down, when we are unfaithful in those areas, there's a lot of pain and a lot of collateral damage. So much so, God's saying, this is the depiction that I would give uh, for how difficult it is when we break our covenant bonds. So, may we be those again who encourage each other in our marriages, say, as we have young couples get married in our church to say, you, you, We hold you accountable in your vows, you hold us accountable in our vows, that we hold marriage in high regard. And the dissolution of this bond and the lack of commitment in our covenant relationships, let's not be in doubt, has tremendous damage. There's an article I go back and read every couple of months. Uh, it was in the New York Times uh, by, by a lady named Wendy Plump. And uh, Wendy wrote, it's called something like The Awful Pain of an Affair, and she's not a Christian. I just go back and read that because she laid it out there for everyone to see to say this was just a a terrible, painful decision that created a lot of damage. And you say it's not too late uh, to say I'm gonna knock off where my mind is going and i'm going to be faithful to my spouse because god has called me to do this and after all our human marriages are a good representation an illustration again of what god does with his people so that's sidebar number one sidebar number two i think is an objection to the modern ear and that is that something like this well this is precisely the reason i don't like the god of the bible because he makes people do terrible things. I mean, here there's this poor chap, Hosea, you know, he's trying to do what's right for God and God makes him uh, marry this woman of ill repute. I mean, who would do that? And I would respond to that this way, that in reading all kinds of, you know, Christian biographies over the years, many people called to do different things, that when God's people, his sons and daughters, are called to do difficult things, far from getting mad at God, they actually seem to trust him all the more. Have you noticed that? Some of us think here, you know, in Avon, I think this a lot. I'm like, who? you know, I got a friend who went to Mozambique and, he, you know, he's had malaria who knows how many times and all these stomach ailments and, you know, there's little fruit and he's taking his young family. Who, who would go to Mozambique? I mean, what a, what a tough life. And yet he says, no, God called me to this and I delight in it and I'm, I'm pleased to serve him. You see, God gives grace, gives grace to those he calls, to do what to others, even Christians, would find to be an impossible task. And I think that's what we see in Hosea. To say, yes, it's a terrible thing, a hard thing that he has to do. Yet God gives him the grace so that he would be a timeless example, right? A timeless dramatization of how much God loves his people. So again, the analogy, what do you mean? The raisin cakes and so forth, that God's people love to indulge themselves, that we love to go away from God, to, if you will, eat the donuts and not the good vegetables of obeying God, but rather to do our own thing. That we've rebelled. God's a faithful covenant spouse, and we've said, No thanks, God. I'm out of here. I'm going to go off and, and worship the other gods and do as I please. Say so that is a temptation we all face. More on that in a moment. But in the midst, in the midst of this description of God's people being unfaithful, look at verse 5. This is what's so surprising. Now, after this time of discipline where they're going to be abstinent, so there will be a punishment. We know that the Assyrians are going to come in. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, there it is. It's a promise. It's a future. You see what Hosea has done? Look at my people. They're an adulterous people. Uh, everything's gone wrong. They're chasing after other gods. There's going to be a, a long period of punishment as illustrated by Hosea by and Gomer's period of abstinence that this is all, all going you know, terribly bad. But there's a time coming where the people are gonna turn back. They're going to come to me. They're even going to seek David, their king, and they're going to come to fear the Lord. You say, there it is. It's a signpost forward. You see how when we read the Hebrew Bibles, there's all these signposts that there's a future here. And what's even more shocking about verse 5 is the mention of David. Because David not only lived some 250 years before Hosea, but remember, Hosea is a prophet to the northern ten tribes. That David was the king out of Judah, the southern tribes. So the fact that these northern tribes who again are about to be wiped out by assyria we know that that's their punishment coming that there's going to be a time where even they turn to the one on david's throne say well who do we know is the one who came on david's throne we would say is it to say that all the people will come to honor the one who's on david's throne we say we know again our christmas story well enough to say jesus is in the line of david right that he's the one on david's throne that there's a prediction here of god's rebellious covenant partner coming to faith in him coming back to fear him and turning back to the one who's on the davidic throne see god's is the loving spouse and there's a promise that this relationship will be be restored so that's picture one Picture one, that God's people are not uh, an unfaithful spouse. How about picture number two? Let's go to chapter 11, one of the great chapters in the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. Picture number two is God is the loving father, that the Israelites are his child, his son. And it's about this, this idea of intimacy in the father. Again, all those of you, you hear, you talk to non-Christian friends, and as often as I can, when appropriate, I talk about comparative religions, but a lot of people say, well, don't you know all the religions are the same? You say, no, you just get a few uh, de- few lines in a debate with a Muslim, right? And this idea of God being a loving father to people is really not only wrong, but actually quite offensive, that God would be at all involved in human affairs. You say, you read the Quran; God is not once called father, but in our holy book, you say God is all, the ultimate father, the perfect and loving father, that there's an intimacy here. Do you see that the words How the words are used. You say, "When Israel was a child, verse one, I loved him. I called him out of Egypt. I called him my son." And then you say, from verse three, you start to unpack again these little anthropomorphisms. So don't you remember Israel? I taught you to walk. You say, "You remember those days? Some in here, or you're like me, not that far off from those days. You remember seeing that little one? First, they begin to roll over, and you're quite pleased." Then they go and crawl, and then you say, well, I'm very happy that little one's crawling around the house, but now I have to realize I've got to take more care and kind of proof the house. And then before long, they pull themselves up on a piece of furniture, and then they grab your hands and take those first couple of steps. And then before long, you say, you got that little one walking, and you say, you're so delightful that you watch them. You watch them develop, and you help them to learn to walk. You say, what a tender image. How about holding the child? Do you see that? That God would pick up Israel in his arms, the image again there. You see those little hands coming out at you that they're light enough to lift up and to give a snuggle, which you can only do to a small child, right? You come up, grab the child in your hands and hold them close. You say, God says, I did that for you, Israel. He healed their wounds. You say, remember those days too, or you've seen it, that the child sprints out on the, on the pavement and skins their knee And they're wailing and there comes mom and scoops him up, wipes away the tears, mends the wound. They say, we all need parents like that. How about to feed us, right? To help navigate the hardship. That's what God would say, to feed them. You know, this is so very dependent. God would put the spoon as any good parent would put the spoon in. Oh, there's a little spit up. Let me gather it and, you know, get it back in there. Say, this is very tender imagery. Israel, I taught you to walk. I held you. I helped you navigate. It's not that you were more clever or a better nation than all the rest, but I'm your father and you've forgotten me that they've went their own way. You know the image that I'm thinking of this week that I hear of often, you say there's a hardworking, maybe uh, blue collar father who never had a chance to go to college and he slaves away six, six and a half days a week that he really wants to send his boy off to one of the top universities. You know, so there he is slaving away 10, 20, 30 years, the dirt under the fingernails. Is that I just want to get my boy off to college. And finally the day comes, the father, the hardworking father with sweat on his brows, able to send that boy off to the top university. And off he goes and does his own thing. Until that first weekend, when the parents can visit, and that dad puts on his very best clothes, which aren't that good, but again, he's had to save just to go see his son who's excelling at college. And that son then would see that dad come and say, well, this man is not sophisticated. That that boy would then be embarrassed of his father and say, look at this guy, he never made anything of himself, and I'm so terribly embarrassed of him. You see, that's a little bit of the image here. You see, God raising up Israel, making them into a nation, looking after them, nurturing them, so you're going to be my covenant people, and then Israel saying, no thanks, I'm embarrassed of you, I'm going to do my own thing. Say, God's the loving parent, and God's people are the child that goes wayward. So picture number one again, God is the faithful spouse. We all get an image of what that would be. The pain of an affair, hanging in there, even after all that, and then God is the loving parent raising the child and loving them even as, they, as they've gone away. But just like, notice, just like in image number three, uh, image number one in chapter three, that there's a glimmer of hope in chapter 11, too. That the day will come, even though, right, God's people, right, my people are bent on turning away from me, God says, that the more I call my child, verse 2, the more I called my child, the more they went away. Say, this is an absolute disaster. But then, verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling. Right, again, they're going to humble themselves, come from the west. They'll come trembling like birds and like doves from a cereal. I will turn them to their homes, declares the Lord. Again, you say, you want to say, what's going on here? god's people are the rebellious child there's a big problem here but then a promise a promise that they're going to come back they're going to come back home that god's going to restore them so before we see how this is all uh, works together we need to pause and see what precisely were the israelites doing wrong i mean what really was their offense and as again we say well it's idolatry It's turning to the Canaanite gods, right? The Canaanites are those who are in the land that they develop a kind of syncretism where they mesh their belief in the God of the Bible with the fertility goddess and the fertility count of the Baal worship. So again, Baal's fertility god and the way that you please the fertility gods is that there's a cult of prostitution and the men, the Canaanite men, thought that and they have union with these temple prostitutes that it would encourage the gods to make the ground give forth more, uh, more abundance. And so it was. And so these Israelites are saying, well, yeah, we've got, we've got Yahweh, of course, but we also have this other stuff and we're just gonna kind of blend in. You say, how very relevant the 8th century prophet. Say, our temptation, right, is not Baal worship, not one here this week will be into Baal worship, but if you think of the idols of our time, to say, I'm just gonna maybe please myself uh, to do what feels good, to be a good libertarian. You know, say, well, yeah, I've got Jesus. I mean, I'm a Christian after all and good church attendance and I have my Bible and, of course, you know, Christmas is a great time of year, but I also have... America, and this is fantastic, and I can do it, and I'm clever, and there's a whole world out there to chase, and you say, before long, you say, we can fall into this habit of syncretism, you say, I've got a bit of Jesus, but a whole lot of the world, and you say, that's the problem with the Israelites, that's the imagery, they're prostituting themselves to these other examples, these other idols, they're bowing to the other guys, they're participating in these other things, and now I have a question here, if you look, say, something like two. 4 uh, 2, what are the Israelites doing? They're swearing, they're lying, murdering, stealing, committing adultery. Later in chapter uh, 4 and verse 12, say, My people are inquiring of a piece of wood. And if you look at chapter 4, say, All the things the Israelites are doing, you say, Where have I seen those before? You say, They're the Ten Commandments. That the very obligations God gave to say, These are how you are my covenant people, the very things He gave them are what they're violating. And I've often asked myself, you say, where is the causation here? It's hard to say. Do people, do we tend to, in other words, follow a false view of things? And when we follow a false view, we begin to behave any way that we want. Or do we start to behave any way that we want as a, you know, say just lusting after the world and then invent or make a religion to justify the way we're behaving? And I'm not really sure. I've played around with that over the years. Where's the causation? Is it the mind to the action? Or sometimes is it the action and then I rationalize and deceive myself and, myself, and make a view to justify it. But either way, these Israelites, you say there's the pattern. You say they're behaving terribly. They've forgotten their covenant obligations. they form formed syncret- syncretistic habits and they've probably constituted themselves to other institutions how is this going to give way and we ask ourselves where are we in this story you say well maybe you're say well i'm kind of like hosea you know i've had to forgive a lot of people that have hurt me You say well maybe, maybe that's true maybe you say you know i'm a lot like god in chapter 11 i mean i have a i have a kid who went went astray and has so disappointed me and i'm i'm a lot like god i've forgiven greatly you say that's not where we are in the story though. that again, is Hosea written to people that aren't in the covenant people of God? No, say it's not written to outsiders, it's written to Israel. You say far more appropriate in my reading is the very scary realization that I'm Gomer, and the very scary realization that I'm the wayward son that that's where I read myself into the story, that I'm the one who's quick to say, I go a long time without thinking of God. I disobey him. I'm an unfaithful spouse. I'm a rebellious kid of his. You say, that's where I'm at in the story. How is God going to treat me? What do I deserve? And say, the real answer to this is judgment. You say, you'll notice in chapter 11, say, Hosea is a book filled with judgment over and over you read the early chapters especially like something chapter two notice how many times God says I will I will execute my judgment you say God must deal justly with all people who behave this way and if there's anything I've learned in 2020 I've learned a lot in 2020 I hope you have too but I've learned this especially top on the list high on the list all people have a very strong sense of justice, don't they? You say, well, we make the application of that is where we dispute. But there, there is this sense in, deep down in the human heart where there's like, I want somebody to settle all the scores. And I think when we shy back from that, say, I don't know about God judge, we come right back and say, actually, our hearts do long for a just judge. Someone that kind of at the end of all history is going to look down and say, everybody's going to get what they want. We long for that, especially, well, definitely when it's not ourselves, but when it's always out there, say, we long for justice. We long for a just judge. We can't have people doing child sacrifices and and misusing women and all the things these ancient Israelites and the Baal cult was doing. Say, don't don't we long for justice in this situation and enter God. There is justice. Chapter 11, verse five. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, no, but Assyria shall be their king. There it is there's going to be a time the Assyrians are going to come in and wipe out Israel there's going to be justice and judgment but at the same time the reason why Hosea 11 is such an important chapter in the Bible is because you can see for lack of a better term this kind of inward struggle in God of course God doesn't struggle but he's giving this to us as a gift on the one hand he's saying I have to execute judgment look at how everyone's behaving i'm the just judge there's got to be a change for ignoring who i am and for going out and doing our own thing and damaging us say there's got to be justice but then notice say, say something like verses eight and nine that as soon as god utters justice here comes the mercy how can i give you up o ephraim how can i hand you over israel How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Can you see this? Sometimes this has been called the divine dilemma. Again, I say God is not never in a dilemma. He never struggles, but again, it's an anthropomorphism to help us understand God's justice and mercy. See, these things are always in tension seemingly. We long for the just judge. We most certainly do. We want someone to 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 reckon all charges and yet Lord, not me. I need your mercy. Here's God, say, Israel, you've forgotten me, you've participated in the bail call, you've mistreated, you you're stealing and murdering. How, as your God, how do I not execute judgment? And yet I don't want to pour out my wrath because I, I love you. And you're my boy, and I raised you, and I love you. You say, How do we reconcile the divine dilemma? And they get the promise, the promise that these people will be brought back. And so now enter, finally, our New Testament passage, Matthew chapter 2. Then Matthew says that Jesus is the fulfillment of these roles. Notice Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, that as the boy Jesus is liberated from Herod after Herod dies, this was to fulfill, out of Egypt he comes back into Israel, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, the prophet Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when I I was educated, the people teaching me the Bible, I know this is odd, but this is the way it is. The the people teaching me the Bible didn't didn't believe in God or necessarily believe in the Bible at all. They were just taught textual criticism. They had a field day with Matthew too. I mean, they just said Matthew must have been the most confused person. He he was the worst reader of texts uh, that there ever was. If there, if there was ever a guy who misapplied the Bible, it had to be Matthew the evangelist. Because look at this. Any reader can tell in Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There are two problems, right, as Matthew would apply it. One is that this in Hosea is talking about a historical event. It's talking about the exodus, Secondly, it's talking about the group of people. How clear could it be? Out of Egypt, I called my son. It's talking about Israel, the collective group of ethnic Jews. Now you have Matthew, confused as he is, applying this quote to the individual Jesus. I say, well, those of us, again, who are within the faith, you say Matthew didn't make a mistake. He wasn't being reckless with the Old Testament. He says this is the point of all of it. He says, Jesus fulfills the role where God's people fail. That as I fail to be a good spouse in my covenant relationship to God, and where I fail to be an obedient and loving and thankful son, Jesus has fulfilled those roles perfectly that just when Israel and the covenant community goes astray, so Jesus, he does what we cannot do, that Matthew, in showing us this, says that those who bind themselves to Jesus, those of us who tuck into Jesus, who surrender our lives to him, that that's when we better fulfill and are reconciled in our relationship to God. You say, how else do we See these promises, right? The day coming where God's people are gonna pay attention to the Davidic king in chapter three, verse five, and come trembling back at God from the west in chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. Say, where is this fulfilled? It's fulfilled in the person of Jesus that when we come to Christ, we're restored into union with God. And I know, again, we don't have time this morning, but you maybe, hopefully, know your New Testaments well enough to say both of these images are, are picked up again, right? Say, so Take something like Ephesians chapter one, where we're adopted as sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. When we come to Christ, we're brought back into the family of God. We're restored as sons and daughters. And when we talk into Jesus and we surrender our lives to him and identify with him, when we're in Christ, that's when we're faithful spouses, Friends, I hope this morning, above all else, in all the clutter, we feel lonely and abandoned, we see very clearly the love of God. He's given us two pictures in Hosea that not any person, that any person can misunderstand. We all know what a marriage is. We know what a good marriage is. We can imagine, hopefully some may be experienced, we can imagine what it's like to have an unfaithful spouse and have them back. See, that's God's love for his people. Again, we've not all had children, but some of us have, or we know people with children. Again, I can imagine what it's like to raise a child, to love them so much, and then to have them run off, and to never pay attention to us again. You imagine the pain, and yet God, like that prodigal son, has those hands open and says, I want to gather my people. And all this, I think, for us, those who are Christians, to repent and return to God I say each and every day as we teach in the membership class, repentance isn't just the thing that we do when we believe the first time, but it's a lifestyle for us. Say, so I want to return more and more to God. Am I tempted today? Absolutely, I'm tempted to go out and chase after under things and play the whore and the adulteress. Absolutely, I am. The world, the flesh, and the devil aren't going away. So I must return, as Hosea says, return to the God, my maker, and not forgive him to be a good covenant partner, to rest in Christ to do the work. Friends, it's a call to obedience and a call to repentance. I leave you with this closing illustration that there was uh, a school play and uh, the kids had worked hard for many weeks to present the play just right for their parents. And at the end of the play, the kids were gonna come out each with a letter and they were going to spell Christmas love. And each of the kids uh, began to come out. You say, here it was, all these weeks of work, and it's the end of the play, and out come each kid, and the first kid comes out, he's got his big letter C, and then comes the H and the R, I, -S S, T, and it's looking great, until the little kid with the M gets it upside down. And instead of spelling Christmas love, the end of the play up front was Christ was love. So even in that mistake, there's a profound theological point. Say, this Christmas, may it never be in doubt that our faith is distinct, that the love of God for his people is relentless, that you feel lonely and despairing and forgotten, disappointed, whatever it's been this year, say, the love of God comes through Jesus, and nothing can separate us from him. May we tuck into him, may we delight in him, to love him, to obey him, and make that our daily mission. I'll pray. Lord, we are too often a rebellious people that if we think about our marriages and then sometimes ask the scary question, what if I treated my spouse like I treated you? Maybe go a long time without thinking of you or think about obedience or paying attention to what you say. So help us to see that we're, we're more like Gomer in this story of Hosea than we are like, like the prophet. And also, Lord, are we like that son? You say, Lord, you've given us life, you've reared us, you've nurtured us, and then we go off our own way and become embarrassed by you. Help us again, Lord, to see the seriousness of our state. But then also to see how you hold out the promise to return. And this promise to return is met in the Lord Jesus and him alone. And this Christmas, as anyone in the room thinks, well, all this, you know, is just talk. Um, that it's uh, ideas and sophistry. Again, may we really gaze upon Jesus and ask that difficult question, who do we say he is? And really grapple with it and grapple with your love for your people and help us to all return and repent and obey and to love you in return. You do that, Lord. We pray that uh, we would depend on your spirit to do that, to be more obedient in our covenant relationship with you, more obedient sons and daughters. May Jesus be lifted high this season and always. Amen.
2: Church, let's stand in our unity.